Happy Saturday and thank you for joining me today. In 1980, Republican presidential candidate Ronald Reagan beat the incumbent Democratic president Jimmy Carter for the White House. And the following year, um, as he was in office and everything, getting everything together, he had to nominate an official for the newly formed Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. And in this historic decision, he chose the first female leader in the young agency's history. Her name was Ann Gorsuch. And due to her ideological views taking over, it was a complete disaster. She was disliked by nearly every single employee within the department within just a week as their new boss. That's a record. And she said the federal government was too big, too powerful, and too eager to issue regulations that restricted business. So she started slashing the EPA's budget by practically a quarter. And then she went on to brag to the Washington Post about this, saying, Oh yeah, I got my agency to reduce the book on clean water regulations from six inches to just a half an inch. I mean, it was really such a bizarre time for the EPA, with their new supervisor making such radical and insidious changes. As if that wasn't enough, she inflicted more detriment, filling multiple department positions with subordinates recruited from the very industries the EPA was supposed to be regulating. And of course, that's going to give you not just enemies, not just any random enemies, but enemies from within the company you are the boss of. If you're bringing out, if you're bringing people in that you're supposed to be regulating, you see how that creates controversy? William Ruckelhaus, the first EPA administrator, said, quote, the big mistake Ann Gorsuch made when she first came in was she sort of bought into the rhetoric of the campaign. She treated a lot of people in the agency as the enemy, and they weren't. But within a week, they were. It was not a pleasant place. End quote. It was becoming so toxic and such a mess that she made the front page of the Washington Post. Budget cuts from the EPA would ultimately uh, cut 3,200 personnel, cause them to lose their jobs by the end of 1983, eradicating 30% of the agency's workforce. 30%, costing a whopping $17.6 million just for severance pay. And Congress was really their only defense on this. And soon six congressional committees were investigating the EPA due to allegations of mismanagement of something called the Superfund program, which was created to clean up left behind toxic waste sites around the nation. Ultimately, the House of Representatives voted to hold Gorsuch in contempt of Congress for failing to overturn subpoenaed records. This whole scandal led to 22... EPA officials resigning, including Gorsuch herself as the leader of that department, and also one of the employees being indicted and sent to prison for lying to Congress. $1.6 billion was allocated under Superfund to clean up abandoned toxic dump sites. In 1982, Superfund came under fire because of alleged mismanagement of funds. 20 EPA officials resigned or were fired, including Ann Gorsuch Burford and Rita Lavelle went to jail for lying to congressional committees. Only seven of the 546 priority sites have been cleaned up with Superfund money. At the current rate, it will take the EPA 50 years to clean up currently abandoned hazardous waste sites. This was a New York Times editorial at the time in 1983, quote, Ann Gorsuch inherited one of the most efficient and capable agencies in government. She has turned it into an agwine 
stable, uh, wrecking of cynicism, mismanagement, and decay, end quote. I mentioned that Gorsuch resigned there just a moment ago, and that wasn't really by choice. She was actually forced out by the man who appointed her, Republican President Ronald Reagan himself. It had become too much of a stench on the administration, apparently. And so they ended up getting William Ruckelhouse, the agency's first leader, who actually became the agency's first leader under Nixon, to come back after begging him to please restore morale there at the agency after this essentially cascade of just relentless attacks and intimidation and scandal. When Anne was nominated, she had to move from Colorado to D.C. with her son, a teenage boy named Neil. Um, who went on to attend and graduate college, becoming a judge. In 2017, then-President Donald Trump nominated Neil Gorsuch to become a justice on the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court. He was swiftly confirmed by the Republican-controlled Senate, and up until that point, had only ruled on a select few number of environmental cases. There were cases in which he ruled in the EPA's favor, including the ability to depart from its guidance. Quote, he hasn't shown himself to have any flagrantly anti-environmental skeletons in his closet, at least not that I've been able to identify so far." End quote. That was said by attorney Brendan Collins, who works with Ballard Spar on environmental cases. Notice how Mr. Collins says, so far there, telling that to the Washington Post in 2017. Sometimes along the way, history plays a little trick on us, and all the loose pieces connect together and they repeat themselves in some form. That is why it was no surprise this week when the United States Supreme Court issued a ruling curtailing the EPA's ability to cut emissions. It's no surprise that when the United States Supreme Court did that, Justice Neil Gorsuch was in the majority on that opinion. It made the front page of the New York Times with this stark lead, quote, The Supreme Court ruling in the Environmental Protection Agency case on Thursday was a substantial victory for libertarian-minded conservatives who had worked for decades to curtail and dismantle modern-style government regulation of the economy. And striking down an EPA plan to reduce carbon emissions from power plants, the court issued a decision whose implications go beyond hobbling the government's ability to fight climate change. Many other types of regulations might now be harder to defend. The ruling widens an opening, attack, opening to attack a government structure that in the 20th century became the way American society imposes rules on businesses. End quote. I see sometimes history plays little tricks on us, and this was certainly one of the clever ones. EPA Administrator Michael Reagan said this move was a setback, making the U.S. less competitive around the world, but he says the agency is preparing for a counterpunch. As if we aren't already experiencing the cascading effects of an ensuing climate calamity, this just makes things worse. But that wasn't the only devastatingly unpopular ruling that the court has made in just this term. In addition to that, the court also rules that police can violate Miranda rights, gun owners can have broad liberty to carry their weapons in public, overturning nearly a 100-year New York gun law, taxpayer funds can be utilized for religious education, prayer is now protected in public schools, state law is superior to indigenous law on indigenous lands, really, when Native Americans were the first here on U.S soil? We're really going to do that? 
Continuing, also, a woman's right to choose is not guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution. Therefore, abortion can be regulated by states. The Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade is one of the most unpopular things, one of the most unpopular rulings in the court's history. I mean, Roe was decided in 1973, making abortion legal nationwide in the United States. That historic landmark ruling was handed down in 1973. That's 50 years ago. When it was decided, it was a 7-2 ruling. Last Friday, it was a 6-3 ruling that ended it. It was quite clear that this was about to happen. Recently, there was a leaked ruling from the court on overturning Roe. Also, it's kind of been a writing on the wall for years. In 1992, the Supreme Court heard a case related to abortion. It was called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And it sort of eroded Roe just a little bit because of an abortion control act that was passed in 1982 in the state of Pennsylvania. This act had these five requirements. One, women must give informed consent. Two, women must receive state published information on abortion. Three, minor for minors, a parent must give informed consent. And also four, married women must notify their husbands prior to getting an abortion. And then five, providers must keep records on and also report information. And so because of that hardline abortion act, a group of providers sued Governor Robert Casey of Pennsylvania, challenging the constitutionality of this proposal. A district court soon ruled that every single one of those five provisions was unconstitutional. A court of appeals was also ruled on that case, and they basically said apprising the spouse before getting an abortion was unconstitutional as well. And then it got up to the U.S. Supreme Court. The, case, the court accepted that case, which re-examined the 1973 president Roe v. Wade. A majority of the court reaffirmed Roe as settled president with a 5-4 to four ruling, and they too agreed that the spouse notification requirement was unconstitutional. It was the first major challenge to the law, Roe v. Wade. In summing up today's decision, Justice Harry Blackman, author of the Roe decision, wrote, Now, just when so many expected the darkness to fall, the flame has grown bright. However, it's also true that that flame can be extinguished by one more vote. Planned Parenthood versus Casey bears the name of Pennsylvania Governor Robert Casey, who last year signed one of the strictest abortion regulation laws in the nation. That became the Supreme Court case. This morning, Governor Casey is in Harrisburg with some thoughts on the high court's decision. Good morning, Governor Casey. Good morning, Katie. Now that you've had time to digest and, and more or less examine the ruling, do you consider it a victory for your side this morning? In talking to our attorneys yesterday, uh, it, it's a mixed result. Quote, it's a mixed result. That was super close. That was in 1992, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. A five to four ruling. If, if it was just one more vote, if it would have just been one more vote, it would have been six to three and Roe versus Wade would have been overturned 30 years ago in 1992. It was a close call at the time, and it was just too close, too close for comfort that the Democrats in Congress introduced a legislative backup plan just in case, essentially, if the court did overturn Roe by one more vote. And this legislative backup plan would codify Roe into law. Congressional leaders said they would try to go around the Supreme Court by making abortion legal once and for all. The Congress must act to ensure that the fundamental right of American women to choose for themselves is not lost. The Congress must act. 
Ultimately, Roe was never codified into law, but as I said, sometimes history plays little tricks on us because now Democrats are proposing the same solution, the same resolution. And they are in crunch time here because... Well, the midterms are coming up, and as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi just warned, if Republicans take control of the House and the Senate, they will make abortion illegal in the United States. They will make abortion illegal nationwide. Quite ironic, given that our neighbor to the South, Mexico, has just legalized it. But of course, one step back, three steps forward, as always, or just maybe three steps back, one step forward, it depends. So, In the run-up to that inevitable dystopian outcome, what is happening now to make this happen? And what exactly does codifying Roe into law mean? Well, for starters, you have to get unanimous consensus in the party for this. With a 50-50 Senate, you need to muster up every single Democratic vote. Literally every single senator has to agree on this. Well, earlier this week, the leader of that party, President Joe Biden, said this. The one thing that has been destabilizing is the outrageous behavior of the Supreme Court of the United States on overruling not only Roe v. Wade, but essentially challenging the right to privacy. We've been a leader in the world in terms of personal rights and privacy rights. And it is a mistake, in my view, for the Supreme Court to do what it did. I'm having a meeting with a group of governors when I get home on Friday, and I'll have announcements to make then. But the first and foremost thing we should do is make it clear how outrageous this decision was and how much it impacts not just on woman's right to choose, which is a critical, critical piece, but on privacy generally. I believe we have to codify Roe v. Wade in the law, and the way to do that is to make sure the Congress votes to do that. And if the filibuster gets in the way, it's like voting rights, it should be we provide an exception for this, the accept, the, require an exception to the filibuster for this action. I feel extremely strongly that I'm going to do everything in my power, which I legally can do in terms of executive orders, as well as push the Congress and the public. The bottom line here is, if you care if the polling data is correct, and you think this decision by the court was an outrage or a significant mistake, vote. Show up and vote. Vote in the off year and vote, vote, vote. That's how we'll change it. Quote, if the filibuster gets in the way, it's like voting rights. We should require an exception for the filibuster for this action, end quote. So that's major breaking news in terms of all the pieces coming together here for this to happen. That's President Joe Biden making that essentially statement earlier this week, making that plea to the Senate to, yes, we need to codify abortion rights into law. We need to make this happen. The prospects of this are frankly quite grim. For context, the U.S. Senate is composed of 100 senators. There are 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. Last year, a bill protecting women's rights to an abortion was rejected by all 50 Republicans. If codifying Roe into federal law was proposed to those same 50 Republicans, what makes you think they wouldn't reject that either? On the flip side, say majority of Republicans do join Democrats on this in some miraculous way. Well, Republican states will surely be ready to sue, saying the federal government is exceeding its authority, inevitably bringing that case before the same court that just overturned Roe v. Wade. What do you think will happen? Effectively making abortion illegal nationwide. We are already seeing the draconian effects of the Supreme Court's ruling that... Take 
effect right now. A 10-year-old rape victim in Ohio was just denied an abortion. She was six weeks and three weeks pregnant when the court overturned Roe in Ohio bans abortions after the six-week mark when a heart rate could be detected. The problem with that little extreme trick by Ohio Republicans is that 80% of females don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. 80% Ohio Republicans. She essentially had to travel out of state lines into Indiana where they are also gearing up for their own abortion ban. Woohoo! Soon little girls like her will ultimately have to travel further or bring to term a rapist child, bring that child, bring that rapist child to a full-term pregnancy. Absolutely despicable. I will tell you, this is sparking vociferous condemnation on Twitter and also just really all over. North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein, a Democrat, said, quote, a 10-year-old rape victim was denied an abortion in Ohio because she was three days past six week pregnant, six weeks pregnant. This is insane. She's 10 years old. Another person says, quote here, victimize the victim, victimize her parents. How the hell is it acceptable to force a 10 year old rape survivor to carry the rapist's offspring and deprive the family the choice to spare her body and the mind the traumas? She's 10. Abortion is a human right. End quote. This appears to be something that is widely shared by Republicans. This was recently. That is that is my personal belief. I believe life begins at conception. So this is the Republican Mississippi Speaker of the House. He's asked, so that 12-year-old child that was molested by her father or her uncle she perhaps should carry that child to full term. And you hear what he says there. Yes, that is my personal belief. I believe life begins at conception. Trying to keep it together here. In addition to that unscrupulously asinine, uniquely Republican belief in some states beyond just that now miscarriages will be have to be proven if you have a miscarriage you're gonna have to prove that because they will be viewed as potential self-induced abortions which in some states is now a felony punishable up to 10 years in prison doctors and other abortion providers can now be interrogated and arrested including those who help women just drive to their appointments it's now abetting an abortion which is also a crime they will come after you in every single way they can, if not through litigation, if not through the legal courts, then through violence, because the right has an armed terroristic wing on this matter that literally shoots and kills people, if you just review the history on this. With Roe v. Wade now overturned, Justice Clarence Thomas cited potentially revisiting other cases like same-sex marriage. Why not go after contraceptives as well, and also the right to privacy? With that type of radical rhetoric... We are on the precipice of becoming a very different country. This is not a drill. This is actually happening. You are alive and sentient, and it is the year of 2022. And I will just leave you with one last thing here. It's from Timothy Snyder's book, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. This is page 75. This is in the new illustration part of the book. 
It reads here, quote, practice corporeal politics. Power wants your body softening in your chair and your emotions dissipating on the screen. Get outside, put your body in unfamiliar places with unfamiliar people. Make new friends and march with them. For resistance to succeed, two boundaries must two boundaries must be crossed. First, ideas about change must engage people of various backgrounds who do not agree about everything. Second, people must find themselves in places that are not their homes and among groups who were not previously their friends. Protests can be organized through social media, but nothing is real that does not end on the streets. It ends here, quote, If tyrants feel no consequences for their actions in the three-dimensional world, nothing will change. Let me just read that one more time for all you listening out here. If tyrants feel no consequences for their actions in the three-dimensional world, nothing will change. We have Supreme Court justices here who are taking radical political beliefs and practicing them now on the high court. If you or anyone you know is enraged about the state of our nation right now in the current Supreme Court, do not just sit at home enraged and do nothing. Get up and channel that anger into political action. Vote, 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 and do it in every single election. The midterm elections for this year, 2022, that decide who controls Congress are this November. Primaries are happening right now in multiple states across the country. Get informed. Do your research. Go to BallotReady.com if you don't normally follow politics or who's running in your state or county. Know who's running for office in your county. Know who's running for your mayor. Know who's running for your local district attorneys. City, also statewide, know who's running for governor. Know who's running to be a congressman or congresswoman in your state or even a senator. Do something. Run for something. Vote organize and encourage others to do it as well because that is a democracy that's what a democracy looks like citizens rising up and meeting the moment and resisting such tyrannical actions that is how we truly move forward to make things happen and change the course of history by rising up and fighting to restore what we believe in If you believe that what the Supreme Court did last Friday, overturning Roe v. Wade, making abortion, essentially throwing it back to the states, making it illegal in nearly the entire country, if you believe that that was wrong, if you believe that that was terrible, vote. Encourage others to vote as well. Get informed. Channel your anger into political action. Do not just sit at home and dissipate. Power wants your body softening in chairs, right? Dissipating with your emotions on the screen. Get up, get outside, go protest, do something. You cannot complain if actions like these continue to happen if you do not, as a citizen of this country, practice your civic responsibility and vote. If you want change, vote. We got more coming up tonight. Stay with us. Whether you put down your phone to be there for your daughter. Or pick up your phone to call a helpline for your roommate. When it comes to mental health, now more than ever, every action counts. 
Amid the dismal and frankly desponding for most people news cycle this week, there was also just essentially a silver lining, a little bit of some grace and also positivity that we saw this week, a historic, a historic addition onto the Supreme Court. Katanji Brown-Jackson becoming the first Black female justice to be sworn in as the new Associate Justice of the Supreme Court after 81-year-old Justice Stephen Breyer just retired. I, Katanji Brown-Jackson, do solemnly swear. In a private ceremony with the justices and her family, Katanji Brown-Jackson made history. The 116th justice and first black female, Jackson said she was truly grateful to be part of the promise of our great nation. It was a moment of hope and collegiality to end a divisive term. This saw a blockbuster ruling overturning Roe versus Wade and letting states set their own abortion policies. A decision that sparked protest across the country. In Europe, President Biden said he would support lifting the Senate filibuster to pass a federal law that could override state efforts to ban or restrict abortion and guarantee abortion access nationwide. And if the filibuster gets in the way, it's like voting rights, it should be, we provide an exception for this, the accept, the, require an exception to the filibuster for this action. And abortion rights supporters are also turning to state courts. In Florida, a judge temporarily blocked the state's 15-week ban under the state constitution, following similar rulings in other states. Today, the high court allowed the Biden administration to end the Trump-era policy of requiring some non-citizens coming to the U.S. to remain in Mexico. And in a decision seen as favorable to coal companies, the court ruled against the EPA's authority to regulate planet warming greenhouse gas emissions at power plants. And Jan Crawford joins us now. So Justice Jackson won't change the balance of the court, but what do we know about some of the big cases that will come next term? Oh, I mean, major cases already on the docket about affirmative action and college admissions, voting rights, election procedures, gay rights, tremendously controversial issues. So our newest justice is stepping into a divided court and more divisive issues on the way. Sounds like you'll be busy again. Next year is gonna be a blockbuster. Jan Crawford, thank you. Amid everything that's happening right now on the U.S. Supreme Court, this was just a little bit of jubilant news. But Justice, now Associate Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, is definitely going to have a lot to grapple with as the court could basically decide influence in federal elections, including what state legislators have the right to do amid, once again, a divisive 2020 presidential election that led to the big lie and also the over the threats of overturning elections, the threats of federal election workers and also state election workers. I mean, absolutely chaotic. In relation to that, there was just major breaking news on that front in relation to what the January 6th committee has just reviewed with a major blockbuster bombshell witness earlier this week. We're going to have special reporting on that tomorrow. But for Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, Godspeed. There is a lot ahead in terms of what the court is about to do and potential rulings. We'll be right back. Introducing Tide Power Pods. With Cat and Nat. I love how much I can stuff into these machines. But that is such a large load. Don't the stains sneak through? Please. New Tide Power Pods can clean that whole situation. You just toss it in before the close. It's like two regular Tide Pods and then some power and then even more power. With 50% more cleaning power, even your large load got clean. How many kids do you have? Girl, I lost track. There's a lot of kids. And then there's a husband. And then there's me. That's a lot of clothes. 
Welcome back. Earlier this week, a story made national news. It was a migrant smuggling case. Um, just the deaths, and it was just completely devastating. U.S. charges driver and three others and deaths of 53 migrants found in tractor trailer. This is reporting from the Texas Tribune. According to the Department of Homeland Security, first of all, it was the single deadliest migrant smuggling case in U.S. history. Citizens of Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador were among the victims. Quote, federal authorities on Wednesday announced that they had charged four men with human smuggling and the deaths of 53 migrants from Mexico and Central America who were found in a sweltering tractor trailer in southwest San Antonio on Monday, a gruesome discovery that had generated outrage in the United States and at least four other nations. The driver of the tractor trailer, Hamaro Zamorano, excuse me, Jr., 45 years old, was arrested Wednesday and charged with involvement in alien smuggling resulting in death. If convicted, he could face up to life in prison or even the death penalty. Zalmarana, who's from Brownsville, Texas, but now lives in Pasadena, a Houston suburb, abandoned the 18-wheeler on a semi-rural road near Interstate Highway 4035, excuse me, and tried to flee. Officials said he was observed hiding in the bush after attempting to abscond, according to the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Texas. A video taken out of Federal Immigration Checkpoint near Laredo had recorded the driver of the truck as wearing a black stripped shirt and a hat. Zalmarano was wearing the same clothes when he was arrested by San Antonio police. End quote. Also, according to federal officials here, according to federal prosecutors who have also charged three other men in connection with this crime, Christian Martinez, 28 years old, he was arrested on Tuesday in Palestine in East Texas, and two other Mexican citizens named um, Juan Mendez, 23 years old, and Juan Bilbua, 48 years old, who were detained on Monday in San Antonio. According to federal officials, they say that 48 migrants died on the scene, including 22 people from Mexico, seven from Guatemala, and two from Honduras. Officials were still scrambling to identify the nationalities of 17 other people who died at the scene, they said. In addition to those, 48, 16 other undocumented migrants were taken to hospitals where five of them died. The gruesome crime and it's sheer to scale, 64 migrants huddled in a big rig without water or air conditioning. And heat that reached 100 degrees on Monday in San Antonio has staggered even veteran law enforcement officials who worked along the U.S.-Mexico border. End quote. This was reporting earlier this week just from NBC News on this absolutely devastating, devastating case. Once again, the Department of Homeland Security is saying it's one of the deadliest human smuggling cases in U.S. history. Tonight across Latin America, heartbreak and anger. Porque estos hechos lamentables que desde luego tienen que ver con la situación de pobreza, de desesperación de hermanos centroamericanos. The Mexicanos. Officials in Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras hoping to give back some dignity to the men and women who died slowly in a hot truck. The tragedy in San Antonio now appears to be the deadliest human smuggling case in U.S. history. Creemos, estamos convencidos de que nuestros migrantes merecen respeto, pero especialmente justicia. But tragically, we've seen this before. The journey is dangerous long before migrants ever reach U.S. soil, as tighter immigration policies push people to extremes to avoid being caught. 
In December, 55 Central Americans were killed in the Mexican state of Chiapas when the truck they were crammed into flipped over. And yesterday's gruesome San Antonio discovery closely mirrors an incident in the city in 2017. Ten migrants died during grueling summer heat while packed into a truck carrying 39 people. The driver, James Matthew Bradley, was sentenced to life in federal prison without parole. Two years before, a dramatic rescue as sheriff's deputies rescued migrants gasping for air from a truck in Frio County, Texas. 39 migrants, including a 13-year-old boy, were saved from 100-degree heat. The asylum system in the United States is broken. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera is a professor at George Mason University. Would you say that as a result, as you put it, of this broken system, that it's forcing so many undocumented migrants to take these dangerous alternatives to try and get into the country? But the core issue in the United States is to solve and to fix this immigration and asylum system that is broken. So far this year, authorities have encountered more than a million migrants along the southwest border. At least 650 died last year trying to cross Mexico's border into the U.S. The Rio Grande has proven a deadly trap for many, while heat, exhaustion and exploitation await others crossing thousands of miles of seemingly endless desert. Those that make it are still far from salvation. As unimaginable as this tragedy is, do you fear that until there's real change, we'll see more repeat of incidents like what we just saw in San Antonio? Absolutely. This is what we were expecting. And we don't know how many of these incidents have not been covered by the media because migrants are invisible. Dreams of a better life, too often ending in tragedy. All right, George joins us now from Los Angeles live tonight. And George, as you mentioned, this is not the first time We've seen a tragedy like this, but what are advocates saying about the root cause causes that pushes so many people to jump into a tractor trailer like that and try to head to the U.S.? Yeah, Tom, here where I'm standing in Los Angeles, 20 countries recently signed to an agreement earlier this month to help address the flow of people across the Americas. Advocates say it's a good start, but more countries need to be involved, especially those that are large drivers of migration like Venezuela and Nicaragua. Now, here at home, advocates say both political parties also need to work together to reform asylum. Adding this latest tragedy underscores the heavy costs many pay while these discussions continue. Once again, that's reporting from NBC News on that story there. We're going to have special reporting coming up on that as well. Um, we're going to keep an eye on this story. So keep an eye on this story as it continues to develop. Um, we have a very special last note coming up for you. Stay with us. I love my new home. I always wanted a house with historic architecture, but it might be too Victorian. Hey, gosh, interesting hemline on this. Pants? Yes, I do believe they're called pants. Pardon me. No. Pardon me. At least Geico makes bundling my home and car insurance easy. I save so much. I have come to call upon... Just text me. Ah. While I'm heading up. <gasps> it's a ghost. For bundling made easy, go to geico.com. It's called self-care. This is how we do it. Turns out Montel Jordan knows how to do almost everything. And it turns out that Dremel is a quality insurance company that's been saving people money for nearly 60 years. For a great low rate and nearly 60 years of quality coverage, go with the Dremel. Here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show, we are getting ready to celebrate four incredible years of podcasting. Can you believe it? It's been four years already. Four years of podcasting. Whew, that anniversary is coming up on July 19th, so in approximately 17 days. Today's July 7th, um, excuse me, 2nd. We are working up to that date very, very steadfastly. So please send in your audio messages if you would like to send in one for my family and friends. Of course, you are um, always welcome to send in an audio message. 
Um, we're gonna have, I'm not sure exactly what we're going to do on that day, but I know it's gonna be special. It's gonna be different. It's going to be a whole new outline in terms of um, what this show has in planned. It's been a little bit of a rough year in terms of publishing podcast episodes on this show, but of course, um, extenuating circumstances. Um, I want to thank my audience for always being there. I want to thank, of course, journalism and also sources for always being there as well. Thank you so much, you all you TGPS listeners who make the show happen, who continuously listen to the show. I see the plays. I see your donations. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. I really, really appreciate it. New episode will be published tomorrow. All right. See you then.